It is Thursday, April 1st, 2021, and this is the Fight Business Podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Auger, and today we're going to cover a lot of breaking news in the MMA industry. We've got John Jones angling very publicly for a super fight with Francis Ngannou, trying to do some contract negotiations through Twitter. We're going to talk about his tweets, the tweets he deleted, Francis Ngannou's response, and how we can expect the promotion to respond going forward, especially given that one of their biggest stars is publicly grieving about his pay. Next, we have to cover Endeavor buying out the rest of the 49.9% of the UFC from the other partners, KKR and Silver Lake. It's a huge deal. It's got major ramifications for the promotion. It's going to affect Endeavor's IPO that we can expect this year, as well as the UFC's rumored IPO that we thought was going to happen sometime this year. I'm going to break all of that down. There's going to be a lot of good information in that section, so make sure you check that one out. Then we've got the Reebok deal. It's finally come to an end. We're going to talk about how much the fighters were paid, what the promotion got monetarily-wise, as well as what the real goal of the Reebok deal was, because I think it's going to surprise a lot of people. It wasn't really about the money. It was about something completely different. Lastly, we're going to talk about Combate. They have rebranded. They've got a new broadcast deal. We're going to break down what that means for the promotion and what we can expect from them moving forward as well. So as always, we've got the timestamps at the bottom, and let's go ahead and dive right in. So the first thing I want to talk about today is John Jones has taken to Twitter to publicly call out the UFC for not paying him enough in order to fight Francis Ngannou in a super fight. Now, I did do another video with Drake on on whether or not Ngannou versus Jones would happen, and we covered that situation from a high level, so make sure you check that out. But from a business perspective here, this ties into Endeavor's buyout of the UFC, which we're going to get to in a minute, which is why I want to focus on it right now. So... Jones has essentially come out and said, you know, he's talked to the UFC's lawyer and that eight to $10 million is not enough money. He's going to need more than that. Said he's endured a lot of injuries and surgeries throughout his 20s, felt underpaid for the majority of his career. And while he's not looking to get compensation for that time, he does want compensation moving forward or what he feels is adequate compensation moving forward. He said that if this was Conor McGregor, the, the promotion wouldn't bat an eye. They'd just kind of grant the request. And he's you know, pointed out that the Tyson Fury, Anthony Joshua pay-per-view that's coming up, you know, probably end up getting around 800K million buys. And they're both getting paid much more money just as a base plus, you know, any extra on top of that. So looking at this situation, there's a couple things to unpack, right? We, we've seen Jones do this before. When he moved up to heavyweight, vacated the light heavyweight belt and said, you know, go ahead and have it. I'm going to move up to, you know, the next weight class, try and become a two weight class champion. When he initially did that, these types of situations, these tweets that, you know, he said UFC and him couldn't come to a number that that had happened, you know, when he originally moved up and apparently then he had a phone call and said everything was smoothed over. We're good. But. It wasn't that long ago that Jones and the UFC were beefing about getting paid even before Francis Ngannou took out Stipe and became the new champ. So now as Jones is in a prime position to angle for this fight, this is the fight that a lot of fans want, hardcores especially want it, but even casual fans, right, would love to see John Jones try and take the belt off of the knockout machine that is Francis Ngannou. 
it, it's left him in a situation with maybe more leverage than he perceives, but the promotion itself, right, isn't necessarily going to budge here. They're not going to acquiesce. Eight to 10 million is too low. Let's dissect that a little bit, right? We know based on the antitrust lawsuit filings that at least up until 2017, 8 million was the highest amount a fighter was paid. And that included a base rate as well as pay-per-view buys, uh, sponsorships, all of that, right? In terms of costs that came out of the UFC to a fighter, the highest that was recorded up until 2017 was $8 million. Now, the past couple of years, it's very possible that they upped that amount, that there's been there's been enough big fights, right? McGregor's been more active. There's been some, you know, there's been some reason to think that it might be above $8 million in 2018, 2019, so on and so forth. But still... That's their highest, up until that point, that's their highest paid fighter is $8 million. Jones is now saying 8 to $10 million is far too low. He needs much more than that. If you look at Jones's MRP, right? I've talked about fighter MRP a lot, about main events being the main you know, reason that casuals buy pay-per-views, all of that. But John Nash at Bloody Elbow essentially took John Jones as a case study and looked at his specific MRP. How much did Jones hypothetically add to a particular event in revenue and compare that to what he was paid or what we expect him to be paid based on the numbers that we have back before the ESPN deal. So we had a better idea of pay-per-view buys. You had you know, the Nevada State Athletic Commission disclosing salaries, that type of deal. So looking at these numbers, right? When it's all said and done, if you attribute 50% of, of those pay-per-view buys, so we're not saying that if it's 650,000 pay-per-view buys, Jones was the reason that all of them sold. It's, it's using a conservative estimate there. You end up with, you know, based on Nash's calculations, you end up with Jones making a maximum of $32 million. So that's a difference of $76 million over the career of John Jones from the pay-per-view numbers that we know. Now, Nash went on to break down a hypothetical situation with Nganu, and if the pay-per-view was a blockbuster, did over a million buys, looking at around you know $30 million or so in MRP added for the promotion compared to what Jones would be paid, right? So again, these numbers are not scientific. They, they, you can't know what every single person, the reason why they bought a particular pay-per-view, but we can probably safely attribute the majority of them to being the headliner and the A-side of, of the main event, which has been Jones in pretty much every situation. So it, it doesn't seem that unreasonable that the promotion might acquiesce here and give him you know, what he wants, at least on the surface, right? From an outsider's view, I see a lot of people tweeting out like, yes, he's been a, a face of the company for a long time. He's been an undefeated champion. I mean, you got the Matt ha Hamill BS, but that aside, you know, he, he's defended 15 world titles. It's been a huge deal where he's, he's this monster and well-recognized name in the UFC. He helped build this promotion to what it was. Why not pay him for this big fight? 
right? What, what's what's that going to do? It's not going to break the bank. It's not going to, you know, they're still going to make money off of the event. So why not pay him $15 million or more, whatever, depending on where what he's asking? We, we know a while ago he had said something along the lines of, you know, he wasn't asking for Deontay Wilder money, which was $30 million of base guarantee. He said, how about just half that? So that'd be $15 million. So why not pay him $15 million? Why would the promotion not just give him a boost for this particular fight after all the hard work he's done? Because it is such a big super fight in the eyes of so many fans. Why not do this? And you even got Francis Ngannou saying, yeah, he deserves a mega payday. I think I should get a mega payday too. That right there is the reason why the promotion is not going to budge. The promotion is not going to give John Jones $15 million. Probably not even going to give him 10, maybe eight. Maybe they do 10 if they're really, really dead set on this. But it's the fact that if you give John Jones that bump, it sort of opens the floodgates in a little bit in terms of fighters looking at that situation and saying, hey, I want more money, right? Remember that the era of the money fight started because Conor McGregor became such a massive star and was able to command so much money and, and you know, gets all these special deals done, get proper 12, you know, to be a sponsor of the UFC, get favorable treatment from the promotion and get paid way more than anyone else. And that was part of his, you know, bravado as part of his whole persona that made him such a big star. But that really set off the era of the money fight. Everyone was angling for a fight with McGregor. They didn't care about being champion. They didn't care about finding the next contender. Everybody wanted a big money fight. If you let John Jones get paid, do you not pay Francis Ngannou the same amount? Right? I mean, I don't think they would. I'm going to be honest. I'm pretty sure John Jones is going to get paid more than Francis Ngannou if this fight does come to fruition but it's really opening up the possibility then well okay you made an exception for mcgregor but no one else and even then you didn't let him have stock in the company when he wanted that you know you had some limits on it you start making that exception for john jones well then you've got more people saying hey wait a second especially think about jorge masvidal israel adesanya who from the estimates we know could be bigger stars and have more drawing power than John Jones. Are they not going to get paid that same amount? Right? It, it opens up kind of the floodgates in that regard. And the promotion is not going to risk that, especially with Endeavor buying out the other 49% of the UFC. And I will break that down next. So that leads me into our meat and potatoes of this episode, which is Endeavor has bought the remaining 49.9% of the UFC. They bought it out from their other two part- partners, KKR and Silver Lake, as well as any other miscellaneous shareholders, and will now have to raise and spend $1.75 billion in private investment in order to make this happen. They're also adding Elon Musk to the board of directors. It, it's a huge deal when you look at the ramifications for the UFC itself and for Endeavor's IPO, right? Looking at Endeavor's 2020 financials, this is a company that 
thrives on live events, was profitable in 2018, had a pretty huge loss, about $500 million or so in 2019, mostly due to acquisitions. They had bought up so many companies. They were trying to just become this entertainment and especially live entertainment behemoth. And then COVID hit and just decimated so many parts of their business, right? We had known throughout 2020 with Endeavor's credit being downgraded, with the UFC's being credit being downgraded for Moody's, that things weren't great for Endeavor. We'd seen multiple staff cuts. We'd heard about, you know, disgruntled workers, disgruntled shareholders. It wasn't looking like the best time for Endeavor when 2020, you know, COVID hit. It wasn't, wasn't at all what they had expected. And given their other troubles, especially their failed IPO in 2019, it really just exacerbated so many financial problems the company already had. Fast forward to 2021, right? This is the year based on Endeavor's previous S1 filing for the, their failed IPO in 2019. This was the year where any one of their partners, so not just Endeavor, but KKR or Silver Lake, could state, I want a UFC IPO. They could essentially demand that the UFC be spun off into its own public company. And while Endeavor, you know, of course, has majority control over most decisions, if not technically all decisions of the UFC before they've bought the rest of, you know, KKR and Silver Lake shares, they can't stop this. This is essentially been agreed upon. It is is set in writing. If they don't do something, KKR Silver Lake, come August of 2021, can say, yep, you know what? Been going great, but I want the UFC to go public. Why? Well, obviously, it would make a ton of money. The UFC is very financially healthy. We've talked about it on this show, written several articles about it, where they're just generating ridiculous revenue. Even in 2020, they were the first mainstream sport that was back and they got that COVID bump because so much of the world was locked down. So many sports and other things were not happening. A lot of people tuned in to UFC events throughout last year because it was something to do and something to watch. The closest thing to sports in a lot of ways for several months. So they did extremely well during the pandemic and they have been financially healthy now for a long, long time. KKR and Silver Lake didn't buy part of the UFC so that they could stick with it long term and grow it into this amazing company that they want to, you know, be a part of for 10, 20 years, et cetera, et cetera. Those type of firms, right? They put money into a company like Endeavor and into the UFC so that they can make a healthy profit and get out. We've done other videos, I believe, on this podcast, as well as some other videos um, talking with more of us of the Body Lock about, you know, debt leveraging and why companies do it. If you've got any questions on that, make sure you check out those videos because that goes more into what, you know, debt leveraging is from private equity to try and get money and then exit at a healthy profit and in a shorter time frame. But that's what KKR and Silver Lake were trying to do here from the get-go. So last week, unfortunately, right after I recorded 
the Fight Business Podcast, we had heard rumors about Endeavor trying to buy out their partners. And we had also heard that KKR and Silver Lake had been trying to get out of the UFC for a while. They didn't want to be a part of this anymore. They wanted to take their profits and run, as, as typical investors in their situation do. Had Endeavor not moved to buy out the remaining portion of the UFC, I think it's nearly 100% certainty we would have had a UFC IPO sometime this year, or at least announced sometime this year. Now that they've raised this $1.75 billion to buy other partners and do this, I don't think we're going to get a UFC IPO anytime soon. Unfortunately, I think this kills the UFC going public at least for a couple of years. And that traces back to Endeavor's financials for 2020, where 80% of their revenue was made up from the UFC. That's huge. Endeavor owns so many live entertainment properties, so many things. They've been touted as entertainment behemoth. They they call themselves an entertainment behemoth. And 80% of their revenue came from the UFC. Mind you, despite getting 80% of their revenue from the UFC and the UFC having a good year, they still ended up suffering a $635 million loss last year. Which means that between 2019, where they had all this acquisition and, you know, you know, just created and loaded up with debt in order to buy all of these other companies, plus 2020, over two years, they've lost over $1.1 billion, which is a lot. And we had talked back in 2019 about their failed IPO and how part of the reason they were trying to do an IPO in 2019 was to raise equity to help keep their debt down so they would stay within debt covenants right? And debt covenants are essentially the agreement you have with a bank which says, yeah, I'm going to lend you this ridiculous amount of money, but you've got to make sure you follow and stay within these guidelines. If you don't, you break these covenants, I might call, you know, I might essentially, you know, call on you to pay your debt immediately or pay portion of the debt immediately. So they were really hurting for just cash flow in order to stay within debt covenants back in 2019. 2020 only made things worse. And mind you, they did a lot of cost-cutting measures, which I'm sure was part of an agreement they probably had with you know, the banks and some of their debt holders. We saw, as I've reported on, as many others, we saw multiple staffing cuts. We heard about disgruntled workers at Endeavor who you know, had said, man, we really expected to be paid a bunch. We expected after buying the UFC and all these other companies, we were going to be rock stars, get paid handsomely, and it wasn't happening. That's part of the reason you had that $300 million dividend last year too, paid out to several other investors, probably just to keep them happy. Endeavor was you know, not in a great spot. I think after they looked over their 2020 financials, they probably came to the consensus that if we don't, you know, take full control of the UFC here so that KKR Silver Lake can't call on a UFC IPO, we could end up losing, you know, a lot of money and put ourselves in even more dire financial straits, right? If UFC goes public and KKR and Silver Lake end up selling their shares and, and you know, the UFC... Stock price doesn't do so hot, right? Or has a downturn. 
if you do investing at all, especially nowadays, you know how crazy stocks can get. You've got situations like GameStop where it's like, what the heck? And then you've got other situations where, yeah, you you know did better on earnings than we expected. You beat analyst estimations and you're highly profitable. But you know what? We're going to go ahead and you know tank the share price a bit because we still don't think you're quite there for your outlook of the future. There's so many, so many factors and so much volatility that goes into being a publicly traded stock that... Endeavor would kind of be at the mercy for, you know, 49% of the UFC's equity to be traded up and down. It's very possible, ends up, you know, skyrocketing and they end up making more money and it's all good, but you can't necessarily guarantee that. There's also a lot of complications in terms of spinning off the UFC into its own public company and what Endeavor would be able to really extract from that financially while they desperately need money. So by buying out KKR and Silver Lake, now they can hold off on the UFC IPO and they get to take as much as they want from it financially, right? I mean, they're the parent company. I'm sure there are, you know, that's a little bit of an exaggeration there. I'm sure there are things in place where they can't just take all of the revenue and UFC gets none, but they now have full control over the UFC and as a result, their financials. And that's huge for a company that struggled to make money, has suffered crazy losses, and desperately needs that revenue to keep them afloat. Because as I've talked about, as John Nash has talked about, it's very possible that, you know, had the pandemic persisted, had the UFC not done so well in 2020, it's possible Endeavor would have had to, you know, declare bankruptcy. Their financials were very, very bad. And the UFC kept them afloat. They are now going all in on that lifeboat and are trying to build the rest of their properties as COVID subsides, build the rest of those properties up, become more profitable. And if they get to a safer or really just a better financial situation where they feel comfortable with it, then I could see them spinning off the UFC into its own company. But it's definitely not going to happen this year, definitely not going to happen anytime soon. And it also is going to have a direct effect on fighter negotiations. So we just went over all of the John Jones situation, what he's angling for, his MRP, what we can safely assume he brought in for the UFC based on what he was paid. But as I just talked about, Endeavor is in desperate need for cash, in desperate need for revenue. So a huge reason why you know the UFC has had their revenue is because they've capped fighter costs at 20%. That's been a major thing since they were sold to Endeavor and you know we talk about the investor presentations where Silver Lake helped the UFC put this together for you know Endeavor, Silver Lake themselves and KKR where they basically have said, historically, we keep fighter costs at around 20% and we're going to keep it there. That's a main driver and mission of the promotion. If you pay John Jones $15 million, that event is certainly not going to be within the 20% threshold. And it probably drives the overall fighter expense threshold above 20%. At a time when Endeavor needs all the money it can get. If it was up to Endeavor and... Now that they have full control, who knows what they'll do, but if it was up to them, they would try and 
cut fighter costs down to 15, 10%. They want to cut costs everywhere while they're in this precarious position. I think it's a big reason why, you know, you've seen the rash, you know, cuts amongst fighters who are making more money and then contender series alums being signed left and right. I think a big part of that was because Endeavor's probably been talking to KKR and Silver Lake about this for a while and has been looking to find ways to cut costs and get more revenue. I expect we're going to see more of that, unfortunately. I expect John Jones is going to get stonewalled. I think that there's going to be a couple of situations where you'll see a fighter get paid what they really need. But in the short term, Endeavor's going to crack down even harder than before, I'd imagine, now that they have full control. You're not going to see fighters get paid really what they're worth when the parent company needs all of the extra cash it can get so it can stay alive. And remember, as Endeavor does launch their IPO, which is going to happen, it looks like this year, finally, they'll now be at the you know mercy of investors. And just like with any other large company that's public and has investors, they don't care about the frontline worker or the, in this case, frontline fighter, right? I mean, they investors care about getting a profit. They look at people and the inner workings of the company as a means to an end for them to get profit and just another number. And I am sure that in order for the Endeavor share price to keep rising, they're going to have to find new sources of revenue and ways to cut costs. They're not going to say, you know what? Okay, we've gone on our IPO and we've made a bunch of money. Investors are happy. We're going to go ahead and give you, you know, that 40% revenue share you've been looking for. I know we've capped it at 20. We're going to go ahead and double it. It's not going to happen. It's simply not going to happen. It is a. It is not in their best interest as a company or in the investor's best interest to do it. And that's why you see things like Amazon trying to fight for unionization and Walmart, you know, saying, hey, we need higher pay. And all you see this across all giant companies where the frontline workers, which in this case for the UFC, the frontline workers are the fighters, kind of just get the shaft a little bit in terms of, sorry, man, like, no, we're going to pay you this much. And if you try and unionize if you try and you know ask for more money we can't help you we'll we'll incrementally give you more money as long as it keeps the overall ratio where it needs to be that's that's just the way that really publicly traded companies work even privately to an extent depending on the company but especially publicly traded companies because investors are pouring their money. They're saying, oh, it's $20 stock share. Yeah, or uh, share of stocks is 20 bucks. Sure, I'm going to buy 10 for $200. And I want to see that doubled to $40 price in a year. If you don't do that, well, I'm selling it. And I'm going to help drive the price down because I don't want to be a part of a company that's not going to give me a profit. Investor doesn't care at all how you do it. They don't want to see how the sausage is made. They just want the sausage. That's how it works. So... This is, you know, massive news. There will be much more information to come out about this. When you're looking at the UFC antitrust lawsuit too, Endeavor did mention it in their prospectus and said, yes, we feel confident that we're going to win this lawsuit. We're going to appeal the decision for class certification, which 
as we've talked about on the show, was a foregone conclusion. This was always going to happen. But they've labeled out areas of, you know, okay, this could be a risk here. This antitrust lawsuit that's been levied against the UFC. If that moves forward, yes, that's a major risk for Endeavor, especially now that they fully own the company. And that might have been part of the reason the KKR and Silver Lake were okay, you know, selling their shares right now too, even if they missed out on some profit because they don't have to roll the dice with the lawsuit. It There are so many things that I think will change moving forward in smaller ways, but it's it's important to know also that Dana and company are probably still staying there, right? Dana has a good relationship with Ari Emanuel, head of Endeavor. And I think part of the reason that he signed on after the UFC was bought originally and then got that extension once the ESPN deal happened was because of Dana's relationship with Ari. If anything, I expect Dana to have more control than he did previously because now... Endeavor doesn't have to worry about, you know, making sure KKR and Silver Lake are happy, even though they couldn't technically stop them. You want to make sure those big minority shareholders are happy, right? If, if you can. So now I think it's going to be, you know, Ari saying, you know, Dana, just take, take the reins and run with it. Because Ari has said multiple times that he believes in what Dana White's done for the promotion. He likes the way it's been run and it, it's hard to deny that especially from a business point of view when you look at the revenue that the ufc has generated and how well they've done especially in the pandemic it's hard to look at them and say oh they've done a bad job at running the business or that i could do a better job than him and that's the bigger thing i highly doubt Ari Emanuel and other endeavor executives think that they can do a better job than dana white lawrence epstein mark ratner all those guys at running the UFC. I highly doubt that. So they're more than likely going to say, yeah, go ahead and run with it. As long as you continue to produce the numbers that you're producing, as long as growth continues, we're all for it. Dana said that they've been hand off, hands off before. I expect that to be even more true moving forward. So again, the, the big highlights here are Endeavor desperately needs the UFC to continue making the current profit they're making. They're probably gonna leave Dana and company alone and in charge. And if anything, Dana's gonna have more control. Lawsuit could be a huge issue for Endeavor as well as the UFC. If that continues on and UFC takes a big hit revenue wise, that's gonna really hurt Endeavor where they are right now. UFC IPO unfortunately is shelved for the moment. Probably not coming anytime soon. I would say at least two years, probably longer. And this is a major shakeup. This is going to really hurt fighter negotiations because, as we said, they need the UFC's money. Endeavor desperately needs that money. So expect fighters to kind of, you know, be stonewalled a little bit. And I doubt, unless John Jones is okay taking the, the current pay they're offering him, I doubt we see Jones versus Nganu. So I'll keep you updated as we learn more. We have that hearing on April 6th for the UFC antitrust lawsuit where we might get an idea about unsealing of documents, which would be massive because that would help give us an idea of how the UFC got to be as profitable as they are and you know what fighters have been paid in the past. So it's not such a black box with what 
John Jones has made and we don't have to kind of guess when we're doing the MRP, we'd have at least that number, you know, figured out. So yeah, it, it's, it's huge news. Expect a lot more, you know, news about it in the coming weeks and don't expect your fighters to get the pay that they deserve anytime soon. All right, so the next thing we want to dive into here is the Reebok deal. Yes, the infamous Reebok deal has come to an end. We heard all sorts of complaints from fighters losing money out on their own personal sponsorships when this happened. You know, Dana and and co said when this deal was put in place that the fighters were going to get most of the money. It was a big deal for them. Breaking this down, you know, looking at it retrospectively, 39 point something, almost $40 million was paid out to the fighters, right? And John Nash, again, I know I've referenced him a lot, but he's, of course, the, the guru on this stuff. He just put out a piece talking about the Reebok deal and talking about, you know, how much they were paid, what the fees were for the UFC, and, and we're talking about fees that they had to pay, so not money they actually get to keep, um, that sort of thing. It breaks that all down. And in this analysis, and this is information assuming it's coming from a source within the UFC because some of this, you know, some of these numbers were not public. You you see the fighters get around $39 million or so, or $40 million. And then the UFC actually ends up, after paying out specific royalties that they had to under the contract, which is about 15, 20% for certain items, after paying out the upfront yearly fee, which is, you know, goes all the way up to eight million per year, but it's it's kind of a structured fee each year that this deal happened. You you come to this realization that based on the numbers we know, around eighty million dollar total in this sponsorship deal between Reebok and the UFC, UFC might have actually lost a little bit of money. They may have covered their expenses. They might have gained a little bit of money. We don't know the exact monetary value of the Reebok deal in terms of the specific number, right? We know it's $80 million and upward, but how far upward is kind of the big factor here. Because when you take out the money that was paid to fighters, as well as the royalties and as well as the fee up front that they had to pay for this deal to happen, it really might not have covered all of their expenses, right? They might not have made enough money off of this to cover their costs. Or if they did, it may have been kind of a break-even type thing or a very small amount of profit. But I know a lot of people have taken that number that the fighters got paid and said, man, the rest went to the UFC. They made out like bandits. They've been saying that, you know, everyone's been saying that really the fighters are the ones making the money off of this. And I mean, everyone is in within the promotion, obviously. So like Dana, uh, Lawrence Epstein, all of those guys has been saying that, you know, the Reebok deal is really just money for the fighters and, and the UFC is not really making money on this. But now I see this $39, $40 million number and I know it's 80 million total. So they made at least $40 million, right? No, based on the way that the deal was structured, that's not true. They probably actually didn't make much, if any money on this. They probably, they could have technically suffered a loss, right? Now that's that's crazy to think about when you see some of these no numbers floating around, when you think about how big a deal 
that sponsorship and partnership was when it first was announced, UFC didn't make any money on it. And I mean, also, right, we, we've seen the ups and downs of the Reebok deal with old uh, Gibbler, Melendez, and some misspelling, some issues. But, you know, it wasn't return merchandise. It wasn't enough sales. It was just the way that things were structured. They were never going to make much money off of this. They were kind of telling the truth there based on the fee structure and what they had to pay out. So, yes, it still definitely hurt some of the bigger name fighters, right? I know Ryan Bader said he lost hundreds of thousands of dollars. Vitor Belfort said he lost millions. I don't know if that's true, but I mean, you had a lot of bigger name fighters complain because before they could just go get whoever they wanted as a sponsor. And now they were limited to just Reebok. And then the Reebok tiered pay wasn't, you know, nearly as much as say a big sponsorship from a brand name outside of Reebok, right? Like let's say John Jones, for example, right? Had the Nike sponsorship before they pulled the plug after the hit and run incident. I mean, Nike, if he's able to go out and get his own Nike sponsorship, that's going to pay him a lot more than whatever Reebok was going to pay him once that deal was in place, right? So it's kind of understandable why the fighters were upset. And if you were a lower name fighter, it was helpful because you did get some sponsorship pay, right? If I was new, if I was coming off Dana White's Contender Series, probably not going to have too many big paying sponsorships. You know, we've seen that infamous message, um, from Conor McGregor to a uh, sports, I believe a sports short uh, shorts maker in Ireland where, you know, he said like, hey, can, you know, for sponsorship stuff, can I get any type of money here, right? This was back obviously way long ago when Conor was just up and coming. If you were a newer fighter that came onto the scene, Sponsorship money wasn't necessarily there. So this did give you a floor. You at least got something with the Reebok deal. So a lot of fighters did actually get some money out of it. But for the bigger name guys, yes, it hurt them. But with this new revelation that the UFC actually didn't, you know, pull a fast one and take half of this money and that they actually might have suffered a loss, why? Why do the Reebok deal then? Well, this comes back to something we talked about a couple weeks ago at the Lawrence Epstein AMA that I brought up, that I went to. Epstein said, again, reiterated there, that UFC wasn't making money on that deal. And it was more about the fighters. But he also mentioned that before that deal was in place, when he was talking to ESPN, when they were having talks with other broadcasters, feedback was given to them from broadcast media partners and bigger sponsorship companies that their uniforms looked, you know, unprofessional, right? It was kind of a hodgepodge. It didn't look clean. It didn't look like fighters were in a professional uniform. It wasn't a brand type thing. And that was a huge driver of why the UFC did this Reebok deal. It wasn't about making money on the deal itself. It was about getting a cleaner product that bigger broadcast partners like ESPN would like. It was about having that professionalism, right? Because we've talked about MMA and you know how it was kind of the wild sport. Combat sports in general can be that way, but MMA specifically, you know, was kind of more of a, a wilder sport for such a longer time. Giving everyone a uniform and a set type of fight kit helped make it look 
like an easier sell as a package to viewers. And it's not just, you know, broadcast partners, it's bigger companies. If you look at the sponsorships and the sponsorship deals that the UFC has done in other areas since the Reebok deal, it's been massive growth, massive growth. And that's what it circles back to is let's get a cleaner product so that we can get more money from these other bigger sponsors who may not have wanted to sponsor the sport before and sponsor the UFC before where the fighters aren't getting any of that money. It's more about sponsors for the UFC itself. Let, let's make a cleaner product and a more finished product that's easier to sell. That's what it was about. That's what it boils down to was, was refining their product to make it look more professional so that the UFC could make other partnerships more lucrative. So that is really the legacy of the Reebok deal is yes, fighters that were especially bigger name fighters took a big hit for their sponsorships. New fighters that were up and coming, you know, at least got something. Even if you went in there, fought two or three times and were cut, you at least got some sponsorship money. You didn't have to go out on your own and get it. And the UFC kind of break even loss, maybe a small profit, but really used it as a jumping off point to get bigger deals done. Would ESPN have paid as much as they did for the UFC's broadcast media rights if you had, you know, a bunch of guys repping Condom Depot and weird, you know, male enhancement products or, you know, random companies? Maybe not. I mean, the fact that that specific feedback was given to UFC executives tells me that they probably would not have been willing to pay as much. That, you know, from a marketing perspective, ESPN, had they come to the table and fighters had been able to have their own sponsorships, ESPN probably would have been like, yeah, we'll, we'll put in a bid, but it's going to be lower and here are the reasons why. Here's part of our valuation for these broadcast media rights deals and here is the reason why we are at this price. And a big part of the lower bid, which I'm sure they would have submitted, would be, well, you know, it's not a clean and finished product. It's not necessarily the most refined sports-looking type package that we can sell. It's not like an MLB or an NBA or everybody's wearing the same type of jerseys, all this stuff. No, it's, it's a little bit rough around the edges. So we're going to have to go ahead and deduct you for that. Or maybe, maybe say, you know what, we're not going to deal with you at all because it's just not part of ESPN brand. So who knows how, how that would have gone if the Reebok deal hadn't happened, but that was the main purpose behind the UFC Reebok deal. And that's really the legacy is it helped elevate the UFC to a new level in sponsorships and strategic partnerships. All right. And the last thing to wrap up this episode is Combate has now been renamed to Combate Global and has signed a new deal with Univision for five years and 150 live television shows. It's a big move by the promotion. Part of the reason they're being renamed Combate Global is, is because they're going to start signing fighters outside of the Americas, right? Up until now, it's been pretty much North America, South America, and, and Latin America, really, has, has been their main 
signees. They're now looking to open that up, sign fighters across the world, and become more of a global promotion. I think it's a good move on Combate's part. I think for their, you know, Copa Combate, which is the one-night tournament that's kind of wild where everybody kind of reps their own country and it's a kind of country versus country type thing, it's going to help their brand and the image they're trying to sell as being, you know, sort of this World Cup of MMA. That's If you look at their branding and their messaging, that's what they've been trying to do for a while now is they compare themselves to soccer all the time in terms of saying, yeah, we're just like soccer. Everybody reps their country. And then you have this, you know, Copa Combate. It it mimics what soccer is trying to to do a little bit in terms of having a, a world martial arts tournament type of thing. By becoming Combate Global, by signing fighters outside of their normal North America, Latin America type of, you know, regions, they are now opening it up so that in Copa Combate, you might end up with a truly global representation. And that, again, just helps sell them as this, you know, world's martial art tournament and really just fits their brand well. So I like this move a lot. The five-year deal with Univision is huge because they've been pulling in solid numbers on Univision. Right, their shows generally start around midnight Eastern, but they've been pulling consistently 400, 500,000 viewers, which is is big. It's far better than Bellator did on Paramount or on you know their other networks. It, it's much better than PFL has done on when they've been on big big ESPN and you know before. So it, it's not a bad call at all. Extending that relationship gives them more money, starts to open them up as a bigger brand, starts to elevate them from being a not afterthought because they have, you know, they are recognized as a a good regional promotion, but it starts to elevate them to that next tier, right? It brings them up a level and helps them grow in a way where they're still not going to compete with the UFC, probably not the PFL even, um, or, or Bellator, but they are getting closer to being on the level of, say, a PFL and eventually Bellator, right? UFC's market share and, and where they are is just so far and away, it's going to be almost impossible to catch up to them, save the antitrust lawsuit, you know, being ruled in favor of the plaintiffs and causing some crazy ripples. Otherwise, they're, they're buying away, number one, they're going to stay that way for, you know, decades. Bellator has also built themselves up and gotten to a point where they are a clear number two. They're not so far ahead that PFL or one championship or Combate couldn't catch them, but they are a clear number two. It's going to take a while for anybody to, to get to that level as well. But PFL and one championship are more startups, right? We have talked about that several times where they're losing money. They need investors to you know help fund them as they try and build their brand and try and turn, you know, a profit, they're in that startup growth phase. Could go either way. You know, if they have a particularly bad year, like one championship obviously losing nearly $100 million in 2019 and expected 2020 might be even worse, they keep having bad years, investors stop giving them money, well, that's kind of it. Combate, right now, 
has the numbers, viewership numbers, and has you know their operations in a point where they could easily get investment outside investment if they wanted. There, if I'm an investor looking at PFL One Championship and Combate, especially with this new Univision deal, I'm probably looking at Combate as the safest investment, lowest risk. Got to look at you know possible returns. You'd have to do your due diligence on all that, but they are now one of the safer investment options. And this move is a big deal for them. Are we going to see them get more mainstream coverage from the media, especially the MMA media? I don't know. Um, are we going to see their growth continue in you know Latin America and in you know particularly with Spanish viewers? You know, is that going to you know continue to accelerate? And they're going to use this new deal with Univision and new money that they're getting and, and rebrand as a way to grow that audience? Yeah, I mean, it's very possible. It, it's, Kabate found their niche, they've executed it well, this is a sign that they've executed their business well, and hats off to them. I, I'm excited to see you know, where that goes, especially as they bring in more international fighters. Should be very interesting, and we'll just have to see how it plays out. All right, guys, well, that wraps up another episode of the Fight Business Podcast. If you're watching on YouTube, appreciate it. Please hit that like button, subscribe, bell notification button. If you're listening on Podcast Addict, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, have you. Always appreciate that as well. And let me know in the comments what you think about all of this. Obviously, we've covered some major topics. Do you think things are going to change with Endeavor buying out the rest of the UFC? Do you think John Jones versus Nganu is going to happen? given what we've covered. What are your thoughts on the Reebok deal? Was it still worth it for the fighters' promotion? Does it make sense that a lot of fighters that didn't get sponsorships or wouldn't have gotten sponsorships ended up getting a floor? You know, Let me know your thoughts on all of that. Combate. Are you excited to watch Combate? I'd love to hear f- comments about anything we've covered. Also, if there's any particular subject you want me to dive into in further detail, let me know. I didn't get too nitty gritty with the numbers. Obviously, we're trying to keep the podcast to anywhere from you know thirty to an hour, thirty minutes to an hour length. Didn't want to go crazy with the numbers, but I am all about diving into these details. So if you want more info, let me know. I'm happy to talk about it or cover it in the next episode. Definitely hit me up or any other topic you want to know on the business side of MMA. Always love chatting with you guys about it, whether it's doing it in a video format or through Twitter, Instagram, what have you. Let me know. Until next time, everyone, get money.